0: Hello, podcast listeners <laughs> sound good, headphones. in the land of podcasts. Hello, financial professional looking for a podcast that can help you. Today's your lucky day. This is Open Windows. My name is Julie Mochin. Open Windows is a podcast created especially for financial professionals that have struggled with their inability to manage their own clients, 401ks, 403bs, or 457 accounts. This episode of Open Windows Investing, which is number five, is brought to you by the Pacific Financial Group, also known as TPFG. The firm was founded in 1984 on the single premise that everyone, regardless of their investment account size, should have access to the best opportunities and the best independent expert advice. So for those of you listening that don't know much about us, because we're pioneers in the area of self-directed brokerage account management, we've been able to build relationships with many world-class strategists. And these strategists have enabled us to expand our offerings in our Strategy Plus investment platform, which is for pre-retirees of group retirement plans through self-directed brokerage accounts, otherwise known as SDBA. I do have a lot of acronyms. I apologize ahead of time, but I will have everything in the show notes. (laughs) Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Renee Rainier of Invesco. Invesco is a global investment management firm with offices in over 20 countries, and we tap into their focused ESG ETFs, which is Environmental Social Governance Exchange Traded Funds. Invesco plays a big role in our ESG plus models that we build for participants of group retirement plans, looking for growth with greener options. So, if you need clarity on the SDBA, our team's here to help. If you need clarity on the ESG, you're going to get it today by listening to this podcast. Quickly, before I get into it with Renee. Just please know, I have a list of sites in the show notes and the transcript is there as well with backlinks. I ended up doing a lot of digging and fact checking on news sources and gathering information, trying to keep up with the political turmoil that's going on right now, you know, with Russia, Ukraine, that's shining a huge bright light on energy resources. And actually, the more discovery I did, the more I realized that there are many shades of green. So when we're talking about ESG, it's just not like, cut-and-dry, black-and-white climate change. And it's not about a race to net-zero emissions, necessarily. It's, it's really uh, about preserving humanity. And I think Kermit the Frog was right. It's not easy being green. There are plans, processes to put in place. Work needs to be done on transparency, disclosures, setting expectations that are not outrageous. And we don't have to be extreme to appreciate clean, right? And so no matter which way you may lean politically, I'm sure we can all agree that a more peaceful world with clean air, energy, and water is something worth working towards, right? If you're a financial professional looking for greener options, you're going to want to check this out. And even if you are not looking for greener options, you're going to want to check this out because guaranteed there's someone in your book of business or a prospect out there or someone that's going to inherit assets in your book of business that is going to look for these greener options. Again, today I'm welcoming Rene Reina of Invesco. He is the head of thematic and specialty product strategies for Invesco's ETF and index strategy. We're going to ask him about that and a lot of other things. And he was a pleasure to talk to, super easy, friendly, and is available, by the way, along with our team to help you if, if you would like to just get down into the nitty gritty of sustainable investing. So here we go. specialty product strategy. I'm going to start with the easiest question that I think I can ask. What does that mean? (laughs) What is your role at Invesco? And if you could explain even what thematic means, that would be
1: awesome. Thank you. And look, I'm happy to be here. So my role is head of thematic and specialty product strategy for our ETF and index strategies business. So long title, but thematic investing I think of the root word theme, it, it's more of this growing trend of investors looking to invest in segments of the market that are currently trending and have longer sort of secular growth opportunities. So think technology as an example. On the ESG side, the thematic side is really the environmentally themed products. And so those ESG products fall under my purview. And so in my role, I serve as a strategist. So I provide market insights, commentary for our product line, and then also establishing our strategic agenda for growth. So from more of a product strategy perspective, I help make decisions around where we should allocate our resources and our focus. So ESG is clearly a key priority for our organization. And I think it's a space that's growing in demand uh, in the marketplace. And it's one area that I'm I'm really excited to discuss today on this podcast.
0: Let me see if I have this straight, because this is what is going on in my head while you're talking. So ESG and thematic, if you put those together, does that mean that you concentrate on one part of environmental social governance as opposed to all of it? Meaning getting to net zero on carbon emission or social equity or disclosures, all of the stuff that you can get into with ESG you do more of of a focused ESG? Is that what I'm is that what that means?
1: That's a a great question. And yeah, so from a thematic ESG perspective, so these are areas where you focus on themes and sectors dedicated to solving sustainability related challenges. That can be clean energy, that can be water. And you bring up a good question too, because I think part of the broader discussion is around this sort of taxonomy. I think for some investors, ESG can be somewhat confusing because you see all these different terms. This is broad-based. This is a screener fund. This is a thematic ESG fund. You have to almost take a step back and think about how ESGs evolved. Many might recall older sort of SRI or social responsible investing funds, impact investing funds, early day descriptions of investments that allowed you to screen out sort of these rudimentary issues or topics.
0: Yeah, like screening out tobacco. You wanted to exclude tobacco from your portfolio. Philip Morris, who changed their name to Altria Group thinking that uh, no one would know, I guess. Kraft mac and cheese and tobacco is all the same thing. So screening out was the thing to do at the time, right?
1: Exactly. And in in a way, it was, how can I boycott with my investment dollars? How do I ensure that my capital is not going to these particular issues? And so that was the early days of ESG. And and then the world evolved. In 2006, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, or, or PRI, they came out with a report. And for the first time, ESG was required to be incorporated in financial evaluations. And so since then, you now have these Sustainable Development Goals created, or SDGs sometimes referred to as, so the 17 Goals to Transform Our World. So this is going include things such as no poverty, zero hunger clean water and sanitation, and and climate action, to just name a few. And so within those SDGs, you then evolved and, and now you have these three pillars of ESG, so environmental, social, and governance. And within that framework, you now have these underlying Sort of segments, and that's where you can get into ESG integration, broad-based screener funds, and thematic ESG, which is really where Invesco's roots are in terms of when we first entered this space, many investors may not realize you know, some of our strategies go back fifteen plus years through some of our legacy names. So back when in the ETF business was power shares, we had the first clean energy funds come to market, some of the first water funds come to market. And so a lot of our history in terms of being in the CSG space started back then around these sort of environmental themes. And so it's evolved since then. We now have eight strategies that sort of fit that category. And that's where I spend a lot of my time and focus. All
0: right. That's a lot to get through my head. So you said seven, as far as the UN 17, what are they called again, Renee?
1: So the United Nations, a part of the goals for Responsible Investment, or PRI, they created those Sustainable Development Goals.
0: I had no idea.
1: <laughs> and sometimes we refer to them as SDGs. And you- it's interesting too because this is a part where we recognize how challenging it could be for investors because investors naturally say, okay, well, ESG is relatively new. You have strategies that have been around for you know fifteen plus years. Help us understand that. And you know, one thing we'll do to try to describe our strategies is say they weren't designed with ESG in mind, but they happen to align with ESG. And and part of the alignment we discussed is is with these sustainable development goals or SDGs especially when you think of the areas of of climate action or clean water and sanitation.
0: So episode three of this podcast, I interviewed Matt Summer with Janice Henderson. And Janice Henderson did a study recently looking at self-directed retirement participants. And out of like, I don't know, like 4,500 people, they surveyed they found that it that the correlation between the people who were philanthropic you know giving to charities that you would think would be wanting to invest in esg didn't necessarily lean that way it was it was more people that did um and he called it he had a name for oh conscious conscious consumption meaning that if you don't like the way that a company is doing something you do your own screening. You don't buy their product. So if you don't like how a company is treating their employees, or there's a company that is creating the product in Asia, and they're not following the the labor practices that we would hear in this country, and someone decides to not buy a product because of that, they're the ones that are more likely to invest in ESG funds, um, at least in their retirement, not necessarily the ones that you would think of that are giving towards, you know, certain charities, which... I thought was super interesting, a, a high correlation there. And, you know, obviously, I think these studies are coming out because pre-retirees want to have the ability to utilize ESG type investments within their retirement accounts. And and it's I think it's really cool to hear that um, Invesco, like you guys were doing this for so many years, you know, even before it was like the en vogue thing to do. Which is it says a lot about your company, obviously.
1: Exactly. So there, there was a sort of intention to invest in clean energy solutions, and just over time, as the concept around ESG evolved, it just happened to align with some of those underlying themes. I would just just add to that: is we've been innovative over time and really tried to bring investment solutions to market that didn't exist those were areas where we were early days and so it just so happened that the demand has grown so much over time but that's an example of us understanding and recognizing there was some investment demand there was nothing to fill that demand and we created a solution back then
0: Let me ask you now what you're kind of famous for at Invesco, and that's ETFs, exchange traded funds. Can you tell me how your managers can be more tactical or nimble by using ETFs? And then can you also explain what the difference is or is there a difference when it comes to voting rights or proxy voting, meaning if you're able to vote the same way with an ETF as you would be with the mutual fund. And I'm saying this because I'm thinking of the impact that proxy voting can have on an advisory board of a corporation to change what they're doing or or making sure they have something in place to be more healthy towards the environment. They're Corporate governance.
1: Sure. Okay. No. So those are all great questions. So maybe I'll start. I guess you can look at it a couple different ways. So one, uh, the nimbleness advantage may be for those that are looking to get in and out of their positions intraday. So the ETF could have that advantage, just being exchange traded. But the, the history around ETFs is they tended to be more passive rules or index-based strategies, and that's expanded over time. I, I think that. Compared to active management, there is a clear difference, but you have seen ETFs evolve over time. And so specifically what I mean by that is, if you think about how a strategy reconstitutes or rebalances, in some cases, some funds now reconstitute monthly. So although the holdings are going to stay the same for 30 days, give or take, um, per the index methodology, those holdings can change. And so be dynamic and capture, you know, whatever the methodology is and opportunity set you're trying to capture with that ETF, it, it can evolve and change. And then you got the rebalancing components as well, which in some cases are, are monthly quarterly, annually. So it does evolve. But I think the nice thing about the ETF is the ability to capture the exposure type, um, efficiently trade in the marketplace. And in some cases, based on how frequently it reconstitutes, you are ensuring you're getting the best securities for that underlying exposure type. So those are some of the differences, ETF versus active. They tend to be, again, passive and more rules or index-based strategies. It is blurring a little bit, and you're starting to see more active mutual funds convert into an ETF and, and become active ETF. So the world does seem to change. For now, I would say ETFs are predominantly passive. And then your, your question around sort of proxy voting. So as an yeah. organization, we're able to leverage sort of our positions and holdings within our ETF complex and still go out and vote so we're actively involved in the proxy process similar to a fund now on the mutual fund side you may have the fund manager perhaps a little more active as it relates to um, proxy voting maybe the active fund has a position that's significant in the fund itself and sort of wants to leverage or lobby for some change you know they may have some of that involvement there But but generally speaking as an organization we look at sort of our entire complex and uh, we use our positions as a way to influence and get involved in the proxy voting process, which we are very active as an organization.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Um, for anyone who's listening and wondering what the heck we're talking about when it comes to proxy voting, when it comes to ESG, you know, I referred to just screening things out, whether it's tobacco or whatever it is, right? you know, back in the day, you just screened things out if you you just didn't buy the company that was doing something that went against your values. As the whole ESG environment changed, and it's been around for a while, but as it changed, institutional managers started buying companies that they wouldn't normally buy because they were doing things that, uh, that didn't fit their values, but they bought in to make a change by voting and so instead of just divesting or not investing in something you can invest in a company and if you have enough people investing in that company you can make a change for the better is the bottom line oh good okay uh so renee one of the things that i think about a lot is um the journey of of trying to go from quote unquote brown energy meaning oil to green energy and that transition, how it's going to happen. It, I know you don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but you do see a lot of trends in the industry that, that that our audience is not able to see. What can you tell us there?
1: Yeah, sure. So on one hand, it's interesting to see, you know, how much growth is occurring in this space. So just broadly, as we think about investment flows into ESG products, ESG ETFs, it's been substantial over the last three years. It is like hockey stick growth. And I think part of it is you're know, trying to understand what is, is driving some of that. So, I think on, on one hand, in sort of the most broadest sense, is that so you are seeing a rising standard for corporate business practices. And so that's being uh, pushed up by employees. And and globally, you're seeing that shift take place. And then, if, you, if we just think about the COVID pandemic, buildings is the prime example to where airflow quality, If you had to return to the office, that's a big concern of yours. And so you're seeing standards from all different angles, whether it be gender and diversity, whether it be on the environmental side, clean air standards, if you will. There's this demographic trend taking place that's driving some of that. You're also seeing regulatory and policy developments. And then you're seeing these global sustainability or climate issues or challenges exist. So all of that, I think, in the backdrop is what's driving some of this demand. And I think interesting enough is the U.S., which was following Europe, Europe has been the clear leader just in terms of adoption of ESG and incorporation of ESG from a regulatory standpoint, product solutions, if you will, or investment solutions. But we've seen the U.S. really grow substantially over the last three years. And, and so if we look at last year's U.S., ESG ETF flows, for example, they're up 67% year over year. Now, what is driving some of that, you know, I, I mentioned the climate aspect of it, you know, you refer to the, the brown to green. I mean, climate is becoming a concern. So we can disagree on sort of the route, but these extreme climate events, they keep reoccurring. And so I, I think it's more top of mind now for investors. And you're seeing pressures. On the government side, on the corporate side, and you're starting to see corporations now make decisions to voluntarily transition their their business models. And so, the whole green theme, for example, yes, we have the Paris Accord, a Paris Agreement. You see all these global net zero commitments. Whether it's U.S. by twenty thirty. China by 2050. Globally, you're seeing these commitments take place, but then you're also seeing corporations make some commitments on their own. Whether it's to one extreme, the auto industry, when some of your largest U.S. auto manufacturers come out and basically say they're going to transition away from the combustible engine, I think that speaks volumes. We see the EV or electric vehicle growth both in the States, but also across the European and Asian markets. And we're seeing a lot more organizations make commitments to be net zero or not contribute to carbon emissions. And it is this trend that we're seeing in in the marketplace. And we think that's just gonna continue to grow and accelerate. Policy is a key part of that. However, at the same time you see this transition taking place, we're also seeing the cost, more broadly speaking, solar energy, wind energy, declining dramatically. If we think about the battery technology, the lithium battery market, for example, in those costs and efficiencies have just improved phenomenally over the last 10 years. And so you have that sort of taking place as well. And so policy can, I think, help accelerate that. Although some of the costs have come down so massively that it's almost viewed as just icing on the cake. In other words, we're going to transition regardless, but I think policy can be sort of an accelerator.
0: Renee, I just read an article that essentially was saying that more people would invest in ESG, but it's not being presented to them. And maybe that's because advisors are not necessarily comfortable presenting it, meaning that there's that old stigma of uh, if you're going to invest SRI or ESG, you're going to give up performance. So I think advisors need to understand that there are more people interested in ESG maybe than what they think. Do you have any advice for advisors who feel comfortable with clean water and clean air, but they don't feel comfortable talking to their clients about investing in a more sustainable way?
1: I'd say first and foremost, from an investor perspective, so if I'm thinking about long term secular growth opportunities to grow my capital. Since these countries have all aligned and committed to this transition, there's going to be trillions of dollars of capital that are going to be allocated to see this through. So from an investment opportunity perspective in itself, that should seem attractive. So let's put aside views on on climate change. Is it real or is it not? The fact that there's these commitments put in place, you're going to need capital for that transition to, to be achieved. And so to me, there's an investment opportunity there. So I I think that's the first part. The second part about that is the companies that stand to benefit are companies that over time have been improving their margins. Uh, Their expenses have come down dramatically as supplies uh, and the technologies around clean energy, for example, have improved. And so, you know, to me, there's like a compelling investment case here. Now, away from that, there's also this element Over the last three or four years, and even more pronounced in 2021. And again, it's anecdotally, but just more than I've ever seen. I've been pulled into conversations with our clients because their clients are asking them about it. And so they recognize that uh, there's a risk uh, that they can lose a client if they do not at least try and better understand um, this particular space. And so, you know, I think there is this drive or, or you know, part of the demand that's driven from the client base, reaching out proactively. There's an element of demographics, uh, you know, are younger investors uh, more open to investing for climate related solutions, for example? Yes. Do they necessarily have the capital, maybe not, but they're gonna inherit it. And so there's that that money shift that's going to take place, you know, over the next decade or so. And so, you know, I think, right. I think it's, it's responsible to try and just understand uh, what options exist and the fact that there are, there are many ways now to get exposure. And so I, I think that optionality has grown quite a bit. And if you haven't taken a look lately I do think it makes sense to, to see what's what's out there and what exists because the marketplace has changed dramatically over the last few years.
0: All right, before we wrap up, quick question. The last couple of years, the pandemic has had a huge influence on everyone's life. How has it changed your life? The, the way you do business, what you're doing, how you do business, did it change things for the better or for worse? Tell us how it made um, your life different.
1: You know, with COVID being forced to work from home, in the last couple of years. And, and now we're all sort of slowly starting to return back to the office. You know, some of you maybe have been there for a longer period of time already, but for those of you that are our parents, you know, I think the one thing I always wanted to do was coach my kids sports and with commuting and with traveling, you know, it just wasn't, didn't make sense for my schedule. And uh, over the last couple of years, I've coached four different teams for my kids and, uh, it's, it's really been uh, a good experience. And so, yes, I spent a lot of time behind the desk. I, I spent a lot of time on calls, researching, but to actually go out now and experience this for the first time has been really neat. I'm sure maybe some of you listening in, you've had that same experience just as a result of COVID. But so right now I'm coaching uh, two basketball teams. So a seventh grade uh, travel team and then a uh, it's for my son and then a fourth grade bitty ball team for my daughter.
0: Which one's more fun to coach?
1: The bitty ball. These are young girls who are making their first basket ever. And there's just something about uh, that smile when they score their first bucket that I, that I just love seeing. So that, that's been the most fun.
0: That's super. I, and I love hearing like, The good things that came out of the pandemic, that's definitely one of them, obviously, when um, you can help out and be with your kids and be in that process of of dealing with the other parents. We won't get into that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, have a great day. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back again.
1: Thank you. This is awesome.
0: All right. There you have it. Until the next episode, remember, you don't need to work harder. Just work smarter. Bye. Opening a window. This is Julie Mochan with the TPFG Open Windows Investing Podcast, signing off. This podcast recording has been prepared and made available by the Pacific Financial Group Incorporated, also known as TPFG, a registered investment advisor, offering advisory services. Information in this podcast is to be used for informational purposes only. The information contained herein, including any expressions of opinion, has been obtained from or is based on sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy or completeness is not guaranteed and is subject to change without notice. This information should not be considered or interpreted as an offer or solicitation to purchase or sell a financial instrument or service. Any expressions or opinions reflect the views of the speakers and are not necessarily those of TPFG or its affiliates. TPFG does not provide tax or legal advice. Investors should consult their financial tax or legal professionals before investing. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and all investments contain risk to include the total loss of invested principal. Diversification does not protect against the risk of loss. Have a nice day.